0: This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on.
1: We have made it to the end of Creative Control season one, and oh, what a season it has been. I got to say, we've managed to cover a lot of ground over the last 15 episodes. And for the season one finale, I thought it'd be interesting to revisit some of these topics with someone who's also been just neck deep in the creator economy. So I reached out to reporter Kaya Yuriev, who writes a fantastic newsletter on the creator economy for the information. In our conversation, Kaya gives her opinion on burnout, the creator middle class and government regulation, as well as her forecast for the creator economy's next chapter. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Feiney. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces in people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. All right, well, hello, Kaya. How are you?
0: Hi, Casey. Good. How are you?
1: I am. I am I am just <laughs> existing at this point. We were briefly talking before we hit record record about how we as journalists even feel like creators and that's so true because we are constantly creating content like whether it's like your newsletter or, vi- or this podcast or articles whatever it might be it's like we are very much in this creator economy and so a lot of the things that I was covering this season I was just like I felt like I was asking people, I'm like, I'm asking for a friend and that <laughs> friend is me <laughs> Like, because it's just so much. And so you know, to kind of start, I want to ask I me mean, like how, how, because this is something you cover the creator economy in such a fascinating and insightful way for the information. And I just want to hear from you, like what's sort of been your kind of lay of the land this year? Like, This is something that I know you've been looking at uh, for quite some time, but I just love to start by your general thoughts on... Where we are now this year in the creator economy.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. When I started this newsletter last year in April, it was like boom times, like record venture capital, so much excitement about the creator economy and investing in startups that were providing tools for creators. Um, and now it's just this very jarring difference. You know, we're mm. potentially entering a recession. A lot of people have said, like, oh, you know, is the creator economy over? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Creators have been, you know, around for years, since even the beginning of the internet. Uh, YouTube has been sharing ad revenue with creators since 2007 when it launched its partner program. So the creator economy is not going anywhere. But I think it's not going to be immune from what's happening in the global economy. So we might see influencer marketing deals be impacted because of marketing budgets I do a deals and debuts section in my newsletter that tracks funding deals, new launches. And last year, it was hopping and overflowing with venture deals. And this year, it's really slowed down. Deals are still happening, but it's definitely slowed down. So we are going into kind of this, some people have called it a creator economy winter. So we'll see if oh, wow. that ends up happening. But you know, obviously, we were watching creators pre-pandemic, and we're still going to be watching them. But um, I think the the business side of the creator economy is definitely being impacted by everything else that's going on in the world right
1: now. Mm, Very interesting. And throughout this season of the podcast, you know, I've been talking about covering different topics of the creator economy. And one thing, a couple of the topics I want to talk to you about today, I want to start with burnout, because I know that that's something has been that's, that's something a lot of people have been talking about for, for quite some time now. But I think it's not obviously not just within the creator economy this is something that everyone has been feeling Totally, like you you talk about like just the actual work the actual work of what you're doing but then the contributing factors of everything happening around the world can just make everything feel just i me myself i feel like hypersensitive to everything at this point like sometimes it feels like the biggest burden in the world to just send an email because i'm just so taxed out like i just can't process anything. So you know, I just I want to know from your point of view, I mean, how have you seen burnout play out in the in the creator economy this year? Like, what have you been seeing as it pertains to burnout?
0: Well, I'm happy we're starting with this. And I'm happy people are just talking about it, period. Because even like five years ago, it wasn't really something that ever came up. And I think we really glamorize the creator economy still. And, oh, you yeah. know, we see these, you know, 19-year-olds who are living in these crazy Los Angeles mansions and are on the Forbes, you know, millionaire list and are making more money in some cases than CEOs of major publicly traded companies. It's just absolutely wild.
1: Very but no humbling. One talks,
0: <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> but no one talks about, like, the human cost of this. I mean... You know, even though we were saying how we kind of feel like creators, we do have the benefit of being part of a larger organization. We have paid time off. We have a salary. We have, you know, support. As a creator, most of the time you're doing this by yourself. Obviously, some creators have built out teams and have photo editors and managers, but a lot of creators are just doing this by themselves. There is this meme that's like, quit my nine to five. Now I work 24-7. And that's (laughs) very (laughs) much the...
1: Is it a meme, but it's reality? I mean, that's exactly (laughs) what it is. That's exactly what it is.
0: Exactly. And I think especially when you're starting out and depending on what platform you're on, you're on a hamster wheel. I mean, you're constantly having to turn out content. You have to be consistent. You're trying to build up that audience. And once you get to a certain point, you can step back. You can diversify your business a little bit. Um, But especially on TikTok, like if you're not creating videos, you basically don't exist on TikTok because you're not going to be hitting the For You page. And that's where most people using TikTok are spending their time. So I think burnout is a huge consideration here. You don't have the support of a company or sometimes people feel like they can't step away from it. So it's a huge topic. I think it's one of the top risks to the creator economy.
1: For sure. And I actually interviewed Emma Chamberlain, who's been taking a break from YouTube for the past like six months.
0: I really do think that the issue was just too much YouTube. Mm. You know what I mean? And no break from YouTube. There's a strategy out there with YouTube that, makes it tolerable and makes it emotionally possible, right? I haven't necessarily fleshed out what that would be yet.
1: Which was interesting because if she had this meteoric rise on YouTube and she became like, you know, the it girl of social media, and then she was very public in saying that I needed to step back. I wanted to not only step back from YouTube, but I wanted to put my creative focus elsewhere on my podcast, on building out my coffee company. And I asked her how she thinks burnout is going to shape how creators approach their content. And she predicted that creators will probably start uploading their content in seasons. And I thought that that was really interesting because it's almost like building in that expectation to your audience that there will be a hiatus. So you can say, like, this is season one, and then I'm going to go dark over the summer, and I'll be back in the fall. And I thought that that was really interesting. So I want to hear from you. I mean, have you noticed any other trends from creators that will help them manage their burnout a little bit better
0: i think the biggest thing is just diversifying and Mm. trying to build stuff outside of social media we've seen creators start trying to compile mailing lists and start Mm -hmm. newsletters so that they at least have some direct connection to their audience Another interesting thing that I've really been fascinated with is this rise of online courses and creators teaching courses. A lot of times it's how to build a following and kind of teaching their knowledge and how they got to where they were. Um, And to the season's point, like they drop courses or maybe it's, you know, on an on-demand basis. But that's another way where they're away from, you know, maybe it's a different burnout factory of having to create the (laughs) online course. But I think it's a little bit of a different dynamic than posting on social media all the time. So those are two really interesting things. I think two creators have said that a big thing is just having a team and being able to delegate stuff. A lot of creators are in it because they're creative and they don't necessarily want to be focusing on the business side. or um, So I think Like if they can have a team and if they can just really be the talent and be like, okay, I'm going to do this video and someone else is going to handle the editing and the recording and hashing out my brand sponsorship. So that's another big thing that hmm. when they have support, that can really help with burnout as well.
1: Hmm. And do you see burnout as a factor that may keep people from entering the creator economy? Because you, you you brought up a really good point in saying that we've – we've often glamorized it to the point where we see the success, we see how you can instantly go viral and get millions of dollars and all this fame. But I feel like as time passes on, there are a lot of issues that we're finally talking about. And it's. And I think people are realizing that it's not that that one 19-year-old who made multi – but brokered like a multi million dollar deal, that's one in a million. Like that's not everyone's story in the creator economy. And it is a hamster wheel. Like you quit your nine-to-five and you are working 24, 24-7 at this point. So do you find that that adjustment of expectations will possibly keep people from joining the creator economy?
0: I think it's more that they'll drop out of it. I don't think that it'll prevent them from trying it because I think you don't really realize everything that goes into it until you're doing it because I think a lot of people are like oh how hard is it I'm just gonna make a meme account you know (laughs) but I think once they're in it (laughs) so they
1: they thought (laughs) so they thought
0: and once they see maybe it's hateful comments maybe it's just the amount of time they're spending, that they thought they wouldn't be spending that much time. So I think it's more, the risk is more people starting and then just not being able to sustain this for the long term. Mm. That's more the risk I see of just people not being able to really turn this into a viable career.
1: Yeah, And is there anything the platforms could be doing to help address this issue? And because, I mean, I ask, because I I know that it's, in some instances, they're just platforms, right? You use them how you want, but creators often make the platforms what they are. I mean, we look at TikTok, I mean, of course, there's just people, everyday users that are just sort of like, you know, doing whatever, but I feel like the creators who really pop off and make it make it popular make it, you know, interesting, I just wonder like what TikTok or all these other platforms could be doing to help mitigate this feeling of burnout. Because that's what another, like a lot of creators feel as if, if they take a break, for example, that their audience won't be there, that their content won't be promoted, and you know, on the on the for you page or on the recommendation page, and on YouTube. And I know, you know, the YouTube, YouTube CEO has come out and said that that's not the case; that you can take a break, and they encourage you to take a break. But uh, yeah, I just want to hear. I mean, like, what what more, if anything, could platforms do to help creators mitigate burnout? Yeah,
0: this is something I'm super super interested in. I think that it's interesting to kind of look at the creator economy with the gig economy Mm -hmm. where same i feel like it was a similar story where i remember getting into uber's At the very beginning and drivers were like, oh, my God, I quit my job. I'm making so much money. Uber is giving me these bonuses. I can like drive whatever I want. And then fast forward to now, we're like, are drivers employees of Uber? Like, should Mm -hmm. they? are they contractors? Like, there's this whole debate. And I think we're early, but we might see that happen eventually with the creator economy. And this question will come up of like, are creators employees of YouTube? Like, should they be treated that way? Uh, The information had a creator economy summit um, in the fall. And I asked Robert Consult this question. He's YouTube's chief business officer about what platforms can do. Like, would YouTube consider offering some sort of paid time off grant or like something like that to alleviate burnout? Mm -hmm. He didn't seem that jazzed about it. He didn't really (laughs) answer the, the question. But he said that he thinks kind of the best way is to make sure, to your point, that these systems don't punish creators for taking time off. I did a piece in 2019 about YouTuber burnout, and I talked to some creators who said that they saw huge hits to their engagement, and I think YouTube has taken a look at that, and they've said publicly that they, they don't want to punish people for taking breaks. That's something Robert Kinslow as well said, that you know they look at their systems, they make sure that's not happening, they want people to be able to feel like they can step away. But at the same time, like, the incentives are not really aligned here, right? Like, TikTok wants you to spend as much time as you can on TikTok. Uh (laughs) They have this amazingly powerful and creepily accurate for you page that just sucks you in. So how are they then going to tell creators it's okay to step back when you have to be feeding that for you page to continue growing on TikTok? I mean, obviously, people can go to your page and view old videos, but that's not really the main way we interact with TikTok. So I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, we've seen it a little bit with deals, right? So Mm. gaming, that's super, you know, that's super popular in gaming. Obviously, it happens to the top creators, but YouTube gaming and Twitch are constantly fighting for exclusive deals. Facebook gaming to an extent too, where they will sign a gamer for an exclusive deal and pay them, you know, X amount of money for the year. And that's almost like a salary, right? Like, you know, you're getting that amount of money. I think that's trickier to do with a non-gaming creator, just because gaming is a little bit of a different animal, Mm. where if you're a lifestyle creator, you want to be on TikTok, you want to be on YouTube, you want to be on these different platforms. So I Might be harder to sign someone exclusively, but this idea of giving them some sort of money that they can rely on. I mean, we've seen it with YouTube Shorts, right? Like YouTube signed, we reported on this last year that YouTube started kind of poaching some of the TikTok creators and saying, you know, we'll pay you X amount for six months if you post... X amount of YouTube shorts videos and you can't post them elsewhere for like two weeks or whatever it is. So that kind of stuff is potentially positive where creators have some sort of steady income they can rely on. And that might help a little bit with burnout. But I mean, I think like these platforms offering like healthcare might just get a little bit dicey with, mm, yep. <laughs> with just like laws and, and all that stuff, but it would be really interesting, I think, if there were some sort of grants or vacation policies for creators, uh, uh-huh. but I don't know if we'll see that.
1: <laughs> and that is an excellent segue into the next topic that I want to explore that we, that we talked about on the podcast this season, and that is the creator middle class, help me talk about that. I interviewed uh, Jack Conte, uh, the CEO of Patreon, and I asked him, you know, someone who's been such a champion for creators and really not only champion for creators, but making sure that creators have a long-term sustainable career in doing what they love, would Patreon ever consider having healthcare, like having, having (laughs) having these elements of a job that a lot of times are just overlooked in the creator economy? The way we're thinking about it is at the end of the day, we want all of these things to exist and we want creators to be able to leverage all of these things. And it doesn't mean we're
0: going to build everything. Now, some of those things we want to build. Which ones? I don't know. That's sort of the our 10-year outlook. But I'm sure like some of them will make sense for us to maybe acquire. Or some of them will make sense for us to build ourselves. Or some of them will make sense just for us to partner with.
1: So I kind of want to just start there with this idea of, you know, a consistent income and and, and having benefits and vacation and everything by asking, I mean, like, for you, how are you defining middle class in the creator economy? Mm. I would love to start there because I think, let's just get a baseline because I think people have different interpretations of what middle class means when it comes to creator. So how are you defining it?
0: I don't know if I have a great definition for it. Like you said, I think there's, like, I think a lot of times we actually talk about the creator long tail Mm -hmm. where there's this idea of like you have the top creators who make the most money and then there's everyone else. I think probably the truth is a little bit in the middle. Um, I spoke with Josh Richards recently, a a big TikTok star, and he was like, people have this idea that there's like eight pieces of the social media pie and that like that's it when you can make a really good living if you have 100,000 followers or even less than that. Like I'm constantly surprised when I talk to creators and I spoke with one woman who has 4,000 Instagram followers and she makes a $1,000 a month from sponsored posts. And I was like, that's pretty good like that's not that bad. won't cover your rent in New York City but like that's pretty good for the amount of followers so I don't know if I have a great definition for the middle class I mean is it part-time creators is it someone who's full-time but is making less than I don't know like a, a certain amount of money I don't do we mirror it with what we consider middle class in outside of the creator economy like I don't know if I have a perfect answer yeah. for that um even with, like, micro-influencer or nano-influencer, like, people also have different definitions for that. So, exactly. Like how do you define it, Casey? I'm,
1: I'm I mean, that's the thing. I think we have, a, uh, we have a tendency to kind of attach or apply old models to new things. And I think when we think about the middle class, I think that's what a lot of people try to think of. They think of middle class in terms of just the regular economy. And I don't think that's accurate. I think, for me, the middle class is... It's, it's sort of like the creators that are, it's really tricky. And I was hoping you would give me a good (laughs) answer, Zodan. Not to say that other creators don't do this, but I see the the creator middle class as more of like the hustling class, like the people Mm. that really have to stitch together like alternate sources of income, like people who really, to your earlier point of like diversifying, and not to say that other big creators don't do that, of course they do, but I think there's obviously way more pressure on a certain class of creators to make sure that they're not relying solely on Influencer marketing deals, it will only bring in like X amount of dollars. So it's like, okay, maybe I'll double down on merch or, you know, I'll try to do, you know, in-person shows or something like everyone does that for sure. But I think that there's a certain amount of pressure and a certain amount of necessity for a swatch of creators to make sure that they are diversifying their income because it's really because with someone like Mr. Beast, it's optional, right? He, he right. The amount of money he makes just purely off of his YouTube videos alone, like he's fine. But there are certain creators who totally. really need to have that they they can't rely solely on AdSense or they can't rely solely on influencer marketing. So that's kind of how I see it. Like I just look at it, those creators that are really looking at the full scope of like what's possible in the creator economy and like attacking it at all fronts because they know they have to. And to that point, I mean, do you think that the current setup of the creator economy is conducive to having a middle class
0: it's such a good question i mean i i think there is more opportunity than people think where mm-hmm. i i mean all the time i talk to creators who i've never heard of i mean it's hard to know every single creator it's impossible absolutely but they have these huge followings and they might not have 10 million followers but they still make a really really good living and they make way more money than they ever did in a corporate job Then at the same time, you have these like sobering statistics that you see from like Mm -hmm. (laughs) influencer marketing agencies or other kind of data sources. But Linktree had one recently, and they surveyed more than 9,500 creators. And um, they found that 66% of creators do it Mm part-time, and that just 12% of full-time creators were earning more than $50,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Um, So then you see stats like that. And then also, there's stats of kind of the top earners, right? Like, I think it's the top 10 publishers on Substack bring in more than $10 million a year in subscriptions, right? Like it's really those kind of top names. So those stats can kind of feel a little disheartening (laughs) when you
1: see that. Yeah, And that's actually, that's a really good point. I think that that is sort of, you know, an addendum to defining the middle class is like, are you doing this full time? Like, are you able to do this full time? Are you still holding on to your, you know, nine to five or your previous job? And It actually reminds me of, um, uh, uh, like I interviewed the creator Monica Velos, who is Monica Style Muse on YouTube. And she's this beauty and lifestyle blogger. And she has been on YouTube for nine years. And she was saying that she only went Mm full-time in 2018. Like that was like, she's been, and she's been hustling and doing and putting in the work, like consistent uploads, but she was like, I was only able to go full-time on my nine years in YouTube in 2018.
0: I've been in a game for almost 10 years. I just became full-time in 2018 full time. And people are leaving their, like literally, uh, again, whatever's for you, but I just think it's bizarre how now the industry is kind of like making it feel like everyone can do this. This is not glamorous. So when I think about the economy, I, I am really hopeful that within the creative community, they realize that it's beyond just getting cute and doing a transition.
1: And I was like, that's so realistic because I think a lot of people enter it thinking like, oh, I'll pop off immediately. I'll get all these deals. I'll be able to just like quit. And it's like it doesn't work that way. Like it's there is this grind that you kind of have to do. And I think it's just that's part of it. Like are you able to do this full time? And I think oftentimes in the creator middle class – you can't just yet like you you kind of need to hold on to your nine to five so that's yeah i think that that's yeah we got to a good definition I think. yeah
0: yeah and i think like so many factors go into whether you can go full-time with it right like it depends on your financial situation your age right like if Mm -hmm. you're a teenager and you're living with your parents like yeah you have nothing really to lose right do you have kids what responsibilities do you have like Are you able to kind of take that risk and do you have a fallback plan? Like, it's really hard to step away from a steady income benefits like we were talking earlier. Um, And I think, too, it's this double-edged sword where when you're doing something else full-time and you're trying to be a creator, you're doing two full-time jobs at the same time. So you're not able to really maximize your creator job either (laughs) when you have this demanding full-time job. So it's it's really tricky. Like, I'm sure someone who's doing it part-time could do way more brand deals when they have more time, but
1: Hmm. it can
0: be hard to take that plunge and be able to do that depending just kind of on your personal situation too.
1: Yeah. And so do you think that these platforms should offer a certain tier of creators, health insurance and other kind of benefits? Because right now, it's very much a patchwork of, I think a lot of creators just have different platforms, different services they use to kind of cobble together, you know, as like a, a serviceable living. But conceivably you would think that some of these platforms would make it as make it as much of a one-stop shop as possible so are you yay or nay on that <laughs> that's a good
0: question i mean in theory i'm yay right like i think anything that's more supportive of creators is a positive thing i think probably more realistically platforms could probably be doing more to help them i think substack is just a really good example of They've really changed the stakes with like letting you have your mailing list. And then that's just Mm -hmm. a table stakes feature now for newsletters where any newsletter publisher to be competitive has to let you keep your mailing list, which is, you know, I think a positive thing for creators. And they've also built kind of this hub where you can search for health insurance. They give you a one-time stipend for a month. For some of their creators, they're offering like legal services. And Mm. I think it's a little harder to do that at scale probably, but I think they're kind of an interesting one to watch because they've been really innovative on that front, which you haven't seen necessarily with other startups offering that. But, you know, what struck me about kind of really covering closely for the past year, the business side of the creator economy and the startup side, is it is such a patchwork. Like all these startups came and were like, all right, I'm going to solve for this very narrow niche. And now we're even seeing within startups like a Kajabi was focused on online courses. Now they're offering memberships, newsletters, podcasts. Like they've expanded so that creators don't have to use them for online courses and then Substack for newsletters and then this mm-hmm. for something else. So I think we're definitely going to see more consolidation, especially in the environment we're in. There's going to be more MA. Um, there's going to be platforms that are just going to try to evolve and Maybe they'll still stay like a financial product for creators, but it won't be just tracking earnings. It'll be kind of a full service offering. So I think we're just in the early stages still of of the startup side of this and the picks and shovels kind of approach.
1: After the break, Kai gives her thoughts on the government regulating social media and where the creator economy is headed next.
0: This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at Verizon.com.
1: I want to shift gears and talk about regulation. (laughs) This is something that, oh man, I spent like three episodes this season on trying to unpack just the current state of social media platforms and algorithms and just like all just trying to understand how they work, their impact on our mental health and like what regulation should inevitably happen in the U.S. specifically. And so I know that there's been a lot of talk in the U.S. about regulating social media platforms, but as I mentioned, like nothing really has taken shape. We've seen like the EU has been a you know forerunner mm-hmm. regulating big tech and social. And I do think it's only a matter of time before something passes. And what that will look like, I don't know. But there has been momentum behind curbing the effects of social media on as it pertains to like our mental health, and which of course was, was like turbocharged by Francis Haugen and the Facebook page, p- papers and really putting to words what we already knew about the effects that. Instagram and these platforms can have, like, particularly on, like, young minds. And so I'd like to think that that momentum will continue. But, you know, we'll see how that pans out. But I'm curious to hear from you. I mean, like, just broadly speaking, like, what shifts in the creator economy do you see happening? Should regulation change our behavior online? Because a lot of this regulation is tied to breaking our addiction with social media, like, uh, you know, kind of what the the impact social media has on our health. And that's directly tied with how we as users use social media. So, in, in a sense, like, if, should regulation pass curbing the use of social media, curbing, you know, uh, how addictive these algorithms can be, how do you see that impacting the creator economy?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think in theory, again, are positive steps forward. But like I, to to use kind of a, a similar example, like Instagram's test to hide likes, that was an attempt to improve our mental health because people were... Worried about how many likes they were getting, Mm -hmm. and at first, when I was at CNN at the time covering this news, and I was like, "Wow, this is really fascinating." Because you know, as a young woman, I in college was like very fixated with my likes, Mm and we had a group chat in college, and we would when we would post an Instagram, we would text the group chat and say "LMI," which meant like my Instagram. When
1: it first went out, it was so bad; it was really
0: bad. And so I I appreciate your
1: honesty (laughs) in admitting that because that (laughs) is.
0: I know I did put it in my newsletter because I was like, "Oh man, I gotta just do this and put my friend group on blast." But, but it, it really was a big thing. And so when I was covering this news, I was like, "Wow, this is kind of crazy. Like this is just completely upending how we've used social media since the beginning." And then I was like. But wait a second. This doesn't change the fact that I'm going to see this Instagram post and see this person in Hawaii on a luxurious trip and feel bad about myself, right? Like, it's, mm-hmm. I, so I think, like, going back to your question about regulation, like, yes, maybe some of these will take some incremental steps, but I think the root of the problem is just how we present ourselves on social media and how people judge each other yeah. and, and the face we kind of put out onto our social platforms and the image we curate of ourselves. What's been really interesting to me is seeing some of these bills um, outside the U.S. that are looking at um, photo editing. Mm -hmm. So Norway last summer passed a law that requires influencers and brands to add a label if they've retouched or edited an image. Same thing in the U.K. Um, The U.K. government is reviewing a new bill that would require creators to kind of disclose when they've edited their bodies online. Um, and Ogilvy which is a major advertising agency in the UK and elsewhere but they said that they would no longer work with influencers who edit their bodies or faces so it's like wow this is kind of crazy but then again it's like wait how are you guys actually going to enforce this or like determine that influencers are doing this right like some of these I mean sometimes we've all seen like the bad face tune when like the leg leg is like squiggly Uh but but does this mean like kind of a a bland Instagram filter? Like, does that count as retouching your body? Like, some of the Snapchat filters that kind of, like, make your nose a little smaller, like, it's very Mm -hmm. subtle and it's sometimes hard to tell. So I think there's a lot of questions, like, yes, passing the bill or taking steps to regulation is step one, but step two is, like, how do you actually enforce this effectively? Mm. Um, So I think that's the big question of, like, okay, great, these bills are out here, but how on earth? I mean, there's so many Instagram posts happening every day, like, Who's checking that? Who, it, you know, Ogilvy said that they would use some sort of tech to kind of determine whether an image was retouched, but hmm. I, I think I have a lot of questions about I was how, say, how this will that work in practice. Yeah,
1: fantastically vague. Some, <laughs> some kind of tech, and another aspect of regulation. In, in talking to a lot of researchers, is. They were saying, we just want data. We would love for these platforms to crack open the hood a little bit and let us understand how these algorithms, how these platforms work. And it's interesting because I think a lot of times creators feel just so left in the dark, like not knowing what works, how it works, like what content will take off. And, you know, some of it, I know a lot of these platforms, they release pretty generic advisory guidelines, like, oh, you know, if you just make sure you have, like, really great, engaging content, make sure you post regularly, and you'll be fine. You'll be a star. And it's like, no, I think there's something else. There's more to that, and you know, one creator I talked to, uh, who's Felicia Coleman, she goes by Felicia for the Win on TikTok, and you know, she has was really adamant about cracking TikTok's algorithm, and you know, she she had some pretty interesting findings. And one thing that she brought up that I thought was really interesting was that like these platforms need to do a better job because when content is sort of banned for no reason, or when you know people feel like oh, I'm I'm my content was flagged or I, I, my shadow banned. She's like, there can be real effects to creators for like kind of being left in the dark for certain things.
0: They have a lot of room for improvement when it comes to being more transparent about why certain content is reported, why certain content is blocked, why certain, like there is a lot of room for improvement because a lot of people have no choice but to assume that they have been shadow banned or, but to assume that, that, their account has been hacked. And that might not be, like, as an engineer, I can understand that that might not be the case under the hood. There might just be an algorithm that's getting something wrong. But we need to let the users know that because there are real emotional and psychological effects that happen to people when they're left in the dark.
1: And I think it's, I understand the hesitation some platforms might have in opening the hood because they feel like people just game the system in a way. Yeah. But I do wonder what more of these platforms could be doing to, help creators succeed on the platform or help creators have a better understanding of like what's going on so do you think it's a good idea to give creators more access to the data in these platforms
0: i think potentially yes kind of backing up for a sec i think one of the major problems though is our lawmakers because yeah. how are you gonna how are you gonna regulate something that you don't understand on a surface level like oh, okay yes we can, can, we can like give them data and all the stuff but like If you think of the first hearing, like obviously senators have gotten a little bit savvier since the first hearing with Mark Zuckerberg, but like the senator we sell ads line. Like I mean, even Senator Blumenthal with the like committing to end Finsta, like I mean, to his credit, (laughs) someone told him what Finsta is, but like
1: (laughs) what a time to be alive. That was Ridiculous moment.
0: But I just have a hard time believing that the US is going to be able to effectively regulate social media if they don't even understand how it works.
1: It (laughs) needs to be a partnership between lawmakers and researchers for sure. When it comes to accessing data, when it comes to kind of like I mentioned, like popping open the hood a little bit and understanding more how these algorithms work, just hypothetically speaking, like, do you think that that should be something that platforms should do for creators? Because you know you we want creators to succeed on these platforms and it's like i think there's sort of like a lack of understanding in how a lot of these algorithms work
0: Yeah, I I mean, I think it would be helpful if there was a a better level of transparency because I think there's also like a a lot of rumors that fly around where Mm -hmm. creators are like, oh, I'm shadow banned or I'm this or I'm that. And I I think the platforms come out and say, we don't shadow ban people. And the creators are like, I don't believe you. So there has to be some mediation, I think. And if there's a way for them to kind of open up their books or whatever version of that that is, that can kind of help with some of the trust. I think one kind of persistent rumor that I've seen is the TikTok creator fund kind of throttling your views. So that's a big one that creators are absolutely convinced that that happens. TikTok says absolutely not. And it's hard because I think also so many different things factor into the algorithm. So like Mm -hmm. you might be in the creator fund, but you might be doing something that's actually pushing you down or like there's also issues with like demonetization of YouTube videos and like creators don't totally know what they did that broke the rule. So I think there's things that platforms can do to help creators better understand how the platform works and what their content is doing that's either brushing up against things or not feeding the algorithm. But at the same time, I think creators are so savvy. I did a, a piece earlier this year about kind of the rise of like the static video meme because Mm. as Instagram is prioritizing video and reels, meme creators are like, okay, well, I'm just going to upload this image as a video. And they saw like their views and reach just like skyrocket. So I think creators are very good about, you know, keeping up with what's happening. And like you said, kind of gaming the system a little bit.
1: (laughs) But yeah, I want to close out this conversation by getting your thoughts on What are the trends? What do you see for the future of the the creator economy? You mentioned at the top of the conversation that we're entering into the winter of the creator (laughs) economy. So, you know, in, in addition to that, in addition to influencer deals kind of slowing down a little bit or, you know, maybe not being as lucrative as they once were? Like, what else are you seeing for the immediate future of the creator economy?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, everyone uses this phrase of like owning your audience and it's become kind of this like cliche phrase a little bit, but I think just diversifying your business and having a better connection with your audience is something that creators are really striving for. Um, What's been interesting to see is kind of this revert to blogs and like blogging again mm. like it you know in like i used to read like betches as a blog right before oh my they were God. this huge yeah before this huge, like really i would I read forgot it about I like that. Yeah. but they have built this amazing instagram brand and that's kind of where people interact with them the most now but i've talked to so many creators now that are like yeah i'm creating a website and i'm blogging again and like that's a huge income driver for me and it's a platform i control so obviously i don't think that influence of the social platforms is going anywhere, you still need it for the reach and the distribution. But I think increasingly, creators are taking matters a little bit more into their own hands and trying to figure out like, I'm a small business, I'm a media brand in and of myself. So how do I scale this and not just be focused on feeding the social media algorithms? And I think kind of the savviest influencers are going to really be building these businesses where maybe they have a physical brand and an offline business. Maybe they're doing an online course, and they're just really not having to focus completely on social media anymore. So I think that's a big thing. And I think just kind of weathering the storm that's coming, right? Like if your entire business is sponsored posts, or that's 80% of your income, which is in a lot of cases what creators rely on, like, you have to really figure out kind of what's your strategy. I think at the same time, some of the direct monetization stuff might also be really tricky because if consumers have less money to pay for things, like if people are canceling Netflix, like they might be canceling your Patreon membership. Like, so, so I think that's really tricky too. Um, and just kind of finding ways to insulate yourself by having multiple revenue streams and just having that direct line with your audience.
1: Yeah. 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 Oh man.
0: OnlyFans might be okay, though.
1: We shall see. But Kaya, thank you so much for this. This was so fun. <laughs> thank you. I could not think of anyone better to just dissect all these things than you because you do such fantastic work. And oh, thank yeah, you. I just it, it it informs a lot of the, <laughs> the the reporting and things that I cover here. So thank you for what you do. You are fantastic. This was wonderful.
0: Thank you. And congrats to you on an amazing season. <sighs> I'm happy to be part of it. Oof, man,
1: gear up for season two. I might be tapping you on the shoulders. <laughs> oh, there's so much to cover. But yeah, that's it. Wonderful. That's going to do it for this season of Creative Control. I really have to say that a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and magic goes into making this podcast. So I really want to give an extra special thanks and kudos to my producers, Blake Odom, Matt Toder, and Joshua Christensen my sound designer, Nicholas Torres, and deputy editor, David Litsky, for his editorial oversight this season. Make sure you subscribe to Creative Control on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast, because we're going to have some amazing content rolling out this summer, and we will be back for season two in the fall. So I'll see you then. Done. Done. All right, there we go. That's it.